One of the women who was a Red Army veteran, I remember her telling me that when she arrived in Brooks, she went to have an interview at Lakeside Packers. And the individual interviewing her said, well, are you sure that you as a woman are strong enough to do this work? And she just laughed at him. And she told him, listen, I was a girl when I walked for three weeks to Ethiopia. I was trained as a soldier. And that, yes, she felt she was strong enough to work inside Lakeside on the knife. That's Carol Berger, Canadian anthropologist and author of the new book, The Child Soldiers of Africa's Red Army, the story of an incredible journey of a group of children from South Sudan and Ethiopia to Cuba, and finally to a town in southern Alberta. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm thrilled today to be going on a slightly different kind of journey than we usually take on this podcast. This is a story of a group of new Canadians and the often horrifying trials they went through to get to this country. Torn from their families as children, often not yet even teenagers, they fought in one of the most brutal and deadly of Africa's post-colonial wars. Two million people died in Sudan's civil war from 1983 to 2005. That conflict eventually led to the creation of a new country, South Sudan. These children came to be known as the Lost Boys, though as we'll get into in this conversation, stolen might be a better description. As well as being an anthropologist and author, in the 1980s and 90s, Carol Berger was a foreign correspondent, based first in Khartoum, Sudan, covering the Horn of Africa, and then later in Cairo, reporting on the Middle East for the BBC, The Guardian, and The Economist. Born and raised in cattle country in southern Alberta, she now lives in the Egyptian capital, Cairo. Carol, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you so much for having me, David. Well, it's great to have you here. And I, I'm particularly excited about this one because... Uh, I want to share how we met, and it ties into this story. In 2005, when the leader of the South Sudanese rebel movement, John Garang, died unexpectedly in a, in a helicopter crash, the, the peace agreement in Sudan had just been signed, and he was put in place as the, the president of South Sudan, which would go on to become an independent country. Um, and as a CBC correspondent, then I was trying to figure out how to get to the spot where he died and jumped on the first plane to the furthest northern point in, in Kenya, right on the South Sudanese border, a town called Okachogio, with no clear idea how I would move on to, to the crash site from there. But uh, I was hoping to hitch a ride somehow. And I, I'm on the tarmac and it's semi-desert up there, sort of scrubby land and very, very hot, trying to beg a ride from someone or figure out a way to get onto this town new site, this little village new site where his body is lying. And uh, I think you saw my CBC decals and as a fellow Canadian came up to me and said, hey, are you with the CBC? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get to new site. And she's like, yeah, I am too. And, she, and they, as I recall, you pointed to a, a South Sudanese guy in a mili- SPLA, a military uniform, and said, that guy right there is the, he's the logistics, uh, in charge of logistics for the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. You should ask him. So I sauntered over, nothing to lose, and asked him. And he's like, sort of, yeah, 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 hop in. So I grabbed you and our cameraman, and we all got in this little single engine plane. Is that about how you remember it? I remember that it was several days of kind of high drama because Mm -hmm. even if you wanted to get a visa to enter what was then still technically Sudan, you weren't going to be able to do that. So you and I separately were basically just getting on a plane, going to a frontier, Lokichokyo, 
and hoping to be able to cross the border. And as luck would have it, we achieved that. Of course, no one stamped our passports. Nobody asked us to pay for this 15-minute plane ride that we went on. And off we went into this remote SPLA base camp where the body of Colonel John Garang was lying in state. And it was a kind of nerve-wracking 15 minutes, as I believe you recall. Yeah, exactly. So we, were, we get on this plane, and you and I are sitting together chatting away. And uh, you, you obviously have been in Africa a long time at that point as a foreign correspondent previously. And you said, oh, this plane breaks all my rules about air travel. And I'm like, oh, what's that? It's like, oh, it's only got a single prop, only one propeller. You know, you, you always need two props in case one shuts off or one doesn't work anymore. And at that very minute... That, uh, that propeller started stuttering, bup, 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 and there was a long stall, and we were looking at each other like, oh my God. And then the engine started up again. <laughs> but we it thought, was a dramatic day. It was. It was a dramatic day. And then we got into, as you say, we got into this village news site where Garang's body was, and the entire place was in mourning, and we had people coming from all over Sudan and all around the world, even uh, delegations from international delegations coming to, to mourn the loss of Garang, who was just this kind of larger than life figure, not only physically a big man, but also just uh, uh, just his presence over South Sudan, an incredibly important figure in the end of that war and the, and the fighting of that war. And crucially, at new site, this tiny little SPLA base where John Garang's body was lying, that was where the SPLA selected its new leader, Salva Kiir Mayardit, who continues to be the president of South Sudan. It's now 17 years since he took over after Garang's death. So we were there at that time when this rather select group of senior SPLA commanders and political individuals agreed on this succession. Yeah, and, and so both those men, Salva Kiir and John Grang, very much play into this book, this amazing book you've written on these child soldiers, um, both their recruitment and, and, and beyond. So just for people who, you know, haven't followed the war, the situation in Sudan, South Sudan, as closely perhaps as you and I, can you, can you describe that war in sort of broader terms and, and then how it was that child soldiers got brought into it, really by their tens of thousands? I think the starting point in trying to understand what happened between North and South Sudan in the Civil War is to remember that oil was discovered in territory that was then South Sudan. And this was Chevron Oil Company that originally did the development. And it soon became apparent that Northern Sudan, the capital of Khartoum under President Jaffer Numeri, did not intend for this oil to be refined in South Sudan. And there were changes made to borders so that technically the oil fields would then be within northern Sudan. And plans were made to build a pipeline to ship the oil to the east-north Sudanese port of Port Sudan. And there was already a lot of grumbling within South Sudan. The two regions, while they have much in common, they also have a lot not in common, including that northern Sudan quite generally can be considered largely Muslim and self-identifies as Arab, whereas South Sudan is either predominantly traditional religions or Christian, and the people would self-identify as African. Now, in the long history of the Horn of Africa and Sudan, of course, 
there was slavery, there was terrible oppression of the African peoples in South Sudan. So we have this stress and strain between these two very different regions. And by the time that oil was discovered and it became clear that South Sudan would probably not benefit directly from this new wealth, the stirrings of rebellion began. Then in the course of Jafar Numeri's political maneuvers, at one point he decided to bring in Islamic law. And so this was another trigger for the rebellion in South Sudan. By 1983, several garrisons in South Sudan had rebelled and the men had gone into the bush. So this war, it was not the first war in Sudan, there was an earlier war between 1955 and 1972 so basically, there was only a decade of peace between these two wars, which are linked but are also kind of different because the most recent civil war, the one that my book deals with, 83 to 2005, it was predominantly led by peoples from the Nilotic tribes, and these are the Dinka and the Nuer, which are two of the largest single ethnic groups in South Sudan. So this war sparks off um, in 1983, and... It's by garrisons of, of uh, people in the in the Sudanese military, basically South Sudanese, who've broken away. W what point did the and why does it become necessary? Do, do they see it becomes necessary for them to start recruiting child soldiers? And w what was that process like? In the earliest part of the war, of course, there were underaged boys and youth who also went into the bush because it's important to remember that the Northern Sudanese Army was targeting young men in southern Sudan as part of their own engagement in the war. But what happened was, over time, as these numbers grew, is that the Sudan People's Liberation Army, led by John Garang, instituted, instituted a policy of actively recruiting, and often by force, thousands and thousands of underaged soldiers. Now, for public consumption, John Garang and his commanders spoke of offering these children from South Sudan education. And these children were marched through the terrain of South Sudan across the border into neighboring Ethiopia, where they were kept in these massive refugee camps. But in reality, very few of these youth were ever offered an education. And instead, there was a kind of like a feeder track where once these boys reached a certain age, they would be sent for military training. And the military training, I would add here, was extremely brutal. And it predominantly took place, especially in the first years of the war, in an Ethiopian military town called Bonga. And at this site, division after division of SPLA were trained and graduated. Sometimes they were trained for six months, sometimes eight months, sometimes less, depending on the course of the war. Mm -hmm. The trainers were South Sudanese, Ethiopian, and there were some Russians present. There were also Cubans, including Cuban medical teams. Right, because this is the Cold War, and these guys are very much aligned on the, the East Bloc side. Ethiopia at that time was part of the East Bloc, and John Garang was provided with military bases inside Ethiopia. So this was a matter of convenience. This allowed the SPLA to organize, to train within the relative safety of Ethiopia. Then when they were doing the war, they would 
cross the border once more and come back into South Sudan. So you, you talked to so many in, in the research of this book. It's an incredibly impressive, the, the amounts of uh, interviews you've done with, with survivors of all this experience. Um, I mean, both that journey to Ethiopia and the training are just harrowing. And I'm just wondering if there's individual accounts that stand out to you now when you're thinking back on it that highlight what exactly they went through. I think what I would want to point out, importantly, is that I worked on this book for basically 20 years because the research began when I was doing a master's in anthropology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And I would say that I'm, I'm happy that I was able to take the amount of time that I did because whenever you're in a militarized situation, there are secrets. And among the biggest secrets that are still maintained by the South Sudanese is the recruitment and the use of underage soldiers. So yes, at different times I would get some idea of what the journey had been from South Sudan to Ethiopia. But I would say that it was mostly in the latter stages of my research that I started to learn more so that individuals who are now in their mid-40s retold their accounts of how they were taken in a group of 2,000 boys, how a large portion of the boys had their hands tied, how they were led through this terrain of South Sudan for a matter of two, three weeks through the bush without adequate water. As one of these informants told me, we were like hunters in the bush. They didn't have clothes. They didn't have shoes. And this one individual who, with the benefit of age, can now look back on what happened to him and his fellow youth soldiers, he's quite heartbroken. He recalls his mother giving him a small amount of food to take with him. And she said, when you leave, don't look back. But when you sleep tonight, you will see my face. So off this guy goes, and he was like not even eight years old. And five years later, when he was an active combatant, no more than 13 years old, back in South Sudan, a letter was hand-delivered to his commander to tell him that his mother had died of starvation. And of course, this youth recruit, he was illiterate, so someone even had to read the letter to him. But I think the key thing to know is that over time, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, different South Sudanese politicians, exploited what was understood about these youth and their movement to Ethiopia in order to acquire humanitarian aid that was then used, in fact, to feed the Sudan People's Liberation Army. So that you had these large camps of children in terrible conditions, and it was a commonplace that journalists, American senators, the International Committee of the Red Cross, all kinds of organizations would visit these camps, they would video the conditions, and then there would be some form of humanitarian aid provided to the SPLA. Within the Bonga Military College, there was one battalion whose only job was to cook the humanitarian relief food for the rebels who were being trained at Bonga. So the SPLA was 
being very clever in tapping into, of course, nobody wants to see humanitarian disaster, but it was incredibly cynical because they took these children and youth from their families in South Sudan, put them in these camps with deplorable conditions, and then were able to focus the attention of the international organizations on their plight, leading to humanitarian relief that the SPLA was then able to use to support its military. I mean, it's incredible. And the the accounts you have of the quote-unquote training that they went under, I mean, just horrifying kids being shot in lineups and, you know, kids being put on burial duty, kids, I mean, really just, I mean, just the the mental anguish these children, physical anguish these children went through, the beatings, the, the, you have a very uh, graphic description of a type of punishment where there was a hole dug in the ground and a metal sheet would be put over it and the kids would be stuck in this hole for hours. It must have been just, just harrowing for these children. I think that over time, those who've survived, what I've seen in these 20 years of gathering research, whether I was in Uganda or South Sudan or in Western Canada where some of the Red Army veterans now live, there's a real, um, how to put it, there's a real regret, obviously, because South Sudan, it hasn't turned out the way they had hoped. And it was a very long war. They remember the names of the other boys who didn't survive the training. They remember the names of cousins who died in the combat in South Sudan. So all these men, and some women, I would add, they're dealing with the ramifications of things that happened 20, 30, even almost 40 years ago now. There's a lot of heartache because of their lost childhoods. If they're married and have their own children now, of course they don't want their children to be exposed to what they were. So I think that, you know, with time, as people get older, I think that within South Sudan, at least I hope, there will be a broader public discussion of what happened to thousands and thousands of young people during the course of the war. But I would add here, people are still very careful not to talk about these hard times within South Sudan. Because I would point out that the men, the senior commanders, who put these policies in place in the 1980s, most of them are still at the most senior positions in South Sudan. And this includes President Salva Kiir, who himself was a commander of Red Army contingents. Right. You interview one of his bodyguards who was like 13 or 14 at the time, carrying an AK-47 protecting Salva Kiir. Incredible. It was a thing. All the senior commanders, they liked having 12 to 14-year-old bodyguards. They liked to have boys who ostensibly were kind of related to them, Because I would add here, there are many, many different ethnic groups within South Sudan. And each ethnic group is further divided by sections and clans. But this idea of relatedness, when I was doing kind of heavily detailed, trying to understand the different stages of the SPLA organization, it became evident that down to the battalion and core levels, there was an attempt to keep individuals who were from the same community together. So for these senior commanders, they liked having these prepubescent 
teenage boys as their bodyguards because the reality is young men will do whatever they're told to do. And they had been really brutalized through the training experience. Now that these men are in their late 40s and even some are in their early 50s, they look back at this period in a different way. And I would add that a quite significant portion of my informants I've known for over 20 years. So my notes going back to the early 2000s until now, their understanding of what happened to them has also changed over time. And in some ways, they're more willing to speak more openly about what happened. There's a group of these then that are in this camp and get moved on. Again, it's the Cold War. They get moved on to Cuba, where they've been promised education training uh, with the idea that they will head back. And I, I first came across this in 2006 when I did a story for the CBC on a group of uh, doctors who'd been trained in Cuba, who wound up in, in southern Alberta and Brooks working at this meatpacking plant these medical doctors, uh, and um, someone at the University of Calgary heard about them and said, this is crazy, and got them out and got them some updated training in Calgary and then in East Africa, and then got them back into South Sudan. Um, and all of this was just like an incredible story to me at the time. I, I mean, I had no idea that, that we had this contingent of people in Brooks or let alone that this group had come through Cuba. I mean, what an incredible journey. This was 2006. You'd come across them much earlier. I'm just wondering, after you were a foreign correspondent, you went back and did a master's degree in, at the University of Alberta. And how did you then come across these, these guys? I returned to Canada in the early 1990s. And I was living in Edmonton. And I heard rumors that there were these... South Sudanese speaking Spanish in Edmonton. And I thought, oh my goodness, these must be the children who were taken from South Sudan to Cuba in 1984. Because I'd been living in Khartoum in 1984, and there was like a two paragraph news item in the Sudan news agency, which was the state run press service, saying that several hundred youth had been taken to Cuba by the SPLA. And so in a matter of only weeks, I was able to start connecting to this group of South Sudanese who were newly arrived in Canada. And as I later learned, starting from 1999, groups of the South Sudanese who had been living in Cuba were accepted for immigration to Canada. And I would add here that this is another follow from the Cold War. The youth that were taken to Cuba, there were 619 of them. Half of them went by a Soviet cruise ship, leaving from a port in Ethiopia, traveling for 24 days till they arrived in Havana. And the other half of the 619 were sent on a circuitous route on Soviet planes through Africa and then eventually to Havana. These youth were housed on an island off the south of the main island of Cuba called the Isle of Youth. And there, there was this sort of international of youth and children from mostly African countries that were aligned with the East Bloc. And these schools where these children were housed were surrounded by citrus plantations. So at this time, there were several thousand of these children. They were Angolans, Mozambicans, Ethiopians uh, from Cape Verde, and of course, the South Sudanese. And they would work for half the day 
in the citrus plantations as laborers, and for half the day they would be attending these Cuban-run schools. Eventually, as these children grew up, many of them went on to technical colleges and even universities, but then when the Soviet Union collapsed, 1990-1991, of course the Cuban economy also collapsed. The South Sudanese were essentially stateless. The war in South Sudan had disintegrated into basically a war within the war, so the Cubans couldn't send the South Sudanese back to South Sudan. And so it became this humanitarian issue, and Canada, to its credit, stepped up and said, right, you have 250 of these youth who are stuck in Cuba, we will accept them. And so slowly they all started coming to Canada, and because of economic conditions, Alberta was a good place for them to come, because they could find work. And I would add here, while these South Sudanese had grown up in Cuba, many of them had good university degrees, or were medical doctors. They didn't necessarily find it very easy when they first came to Western Canada to get work. So yes, entry-level position, they found themselves working at Lakeside Packers in Brooks, southern Alberta, the biggest single cattle slaughterhouse in all of Canada. And it was huge when the University of Calgary said, right, 22 of these men and women were trained as medical doctors in Cuba. We're going to upgrade their skills. So that was 250 of them that got out of Cuba and into Canada. Some did make it back to South Sudan, as was the original attention. I mean, the idea was that they would be trained up and be able to both help in the war and help in the rebuilding of an independent nation. But what happened to those ones that did actually make it back to their homeland? Okay, I'm going to make a slight clarification here. Of course, on paper, it would sound like, yes, we want to educate these youth so they can come back and rebuild South Sudan. I would add, however, that the majority of those 619 who were sent out of these terrible camps inside Ethiopia were the sons and daughters of senior SPLA officials. John Garang himself sent three of his sons. One of the other founders of the SPLA, William Nyon, sent six of his children. And so while this group who emigrated to Canada, they didn't really want this to be focused on, the reality is that this was an opportunity for senior SPLA figures to get their children out of the war zone, right? To send them, truly, okay, the other side of the world. But it meant they were no longer in the theater of war. And their children were going to get an education. So, yes, while it may have sounded like, you know, we're going to train up a new generation that can lead South Sudan, I think people are actually more practical and more realistic, knowing that A, we get our kids out of the theater of war, B, we get them in education, and C, let's see where we're at in 10 years, whether South Sudan is going to be an independent nation or what. So I would put it in the context of, I don't know how much long-term planning there was, but there was an opportunity to send their kids to Cuba, they took it. So we have this group of that made it to Canada. The ones that made it back to South Sudan, I mean, what, what was their fate? Do you know, I think that it's important to remember that South Sudan is still waiting to have peace. 
it was in 2013 that a new civil war started in South Sudan. Only two years after South Sudan was granted independence from Sudan. You will find that Canadian passport holders who are South Sudanese who came out of Cuba, there is a certain number of them who will return to South Sudan every now and again. But generally, it has been difficult for the veterans who were educated in Cuba to reintegrate into South Sudan. And so what you find is it's easier for them not to be in South Sudan because of the politics and because it is dangerous and because their parents even may have at some point or other left the SPLA because there were many divisions in the movement. And so there are individuals who at the time that they were sent out of Ethiopia to Cuba, their parents were senior members of the SPLA. But within a matter of a few years, their parents were dissenters and they left the SPLA, which meant their children were put in a difficult position politically because their own families were no longer you know, willing to accept some of the SPLA policies. So I would say to you that for these 22 who were educated and became medical doctors and received the upgrade at the University of Calgary, there have been people who've been able to connect with NGOs to have regular medical programs in parts of South Sudan who are in dire need of medical support. But for the majority of them, the politics in South Sudan have not made it easy for them to reintegrate. So you got to know many of these former child soldiers in Canada. Um, and for the ones in that community in Brooks, which were, has this sort of large concentration of these Cubans, what, what was life like for them when they got there? Do you know, they were so driven to make money to send back to their families. Even though, for most of them, they had lived in Cuba for 13 years. And in those 13 years, most of them didn't receive so much as a single phone call or a single letter. But when they arrived in Canada, for the first time in all those years, they were able to reconnect by phone, of course, with their loved ones, many of whom were in refugee camps in East Africa, in Kenya, in Ethiopia, in Uganda. And there was a terrific desire to work hard, send money to family members who were in dire need. But of course, their families at the same time, not understanding the cost of living in Western Canada, they wanted their children, their brothers, whatever, to finish their educations, because this is always a huge priority for families from East Africa. These South Sudanese who grew up in Cuba, they came to Brooks, and Brooks isn't the easiest of towns. Mm -hmm. It's oil and gas exploration, it's cowboys, it has this huge meatpacking plant, a cattle feed lot. It's a little bit, you know, we're talking heartland, Western Canadian, dare I say it, redneck country. Mm -hmm. And Brooks, because of its huge labor needs, was a real drawing point for immigrants who were coming from the Middle East, from Africa, from wherever. And it's relatively new in Western Canada 
for the immigrant population to come from Africa and the Middle East. So I think it's fair to say there was some resistance to all of these peoples coming into this small, you know, southern Albertan town. The Cuban educated South Sudanese that I have kept in touch with for a very long time, and they were working 60 hour weeks at Lakeside. They were so driven to take care of family needs back in the home countries. And they were highly disciplined and they shared apartments. Oftentimes the apartments were overcrowded. They worked to save as much money as they could. And they were really, really motivated. And this was very impressive to me. Yeah. And you talk about the population there, you know, mostly of European descent up until very recently and dealing with this influx of new immigrants. And there's some pretty horrific stories in the book of South Sunnis getting the crap beaten out of them in in bars and stuff like that. And how do they manage with that on top of that, as you say, supporting families they haven't seen in decades and having to work these incredibly long hours? Do you know, these guys and these women, because there was a substantial number of women, they've lived a lot, you know, they've been through a lot. I remember one of the women saying to me that when she applied to Lakeside Meatpackers, the uh, person who was interviewing her said, wow, you know, do you think you are strong enough to do this work? And she just laughed at him and she told him, you know, listen, I was a girl when I walked for three weeks to Ethiopia. I was trained as a soldier. Like there were these kind of kooky assumptions that I, you know, in my interviews with the European descent people of Brooks, they had a lot of kooky ideas about who the South Sudanese were. And they really didn't realize, particularly with the South Sudanese women, how incredibly strong they are. And of course they could handle this work of being on the knife inside this automated slaughterhouse and meatpacking plants. Yeah, no, incredible, incredible what they've been through. And that anecdote, I mean, so sums it up. I mean, how do they see their lives now in Canada and what they survived? I mean, wh where is this community now? Do you know, there are families in Red Deer, Edmonton, Calgary. Some people have moved further afield. There's a couple of the guys who are now in Newfoundland. A good proportion of them left it to their families to select South Sudanese wives for them. It was a big deal within the community that after some years of being in Western Canada, they started to prepare for getting married. And they had all this trust in their family members selecting the right person for them. So there were these really, you know, moving occasions where young women arrived in Western Canada, you know, to meet one of these Red Army veterans who they were intending to marry. And people have families now. They have kids in school. They have kids playing basketball. One of the veterans who lives in central Alberta, he's been writing his memoir, and he's doing it for his boys. Mm because he wants his boys to understand where their father comes from because these boys are, you know, they're growing up as Alberta kids. They're playing sports, they're going to school. They don't have the knowledge of what their life is in South Sudan or East Africa. So for this Red Army veteran, 
he wants to finish this memoir so he can give it to his kids. Another of the Red Army veterans who's now in Newfoundland, he said to me that because of what's happened in South Sudan, because they have a new civil war, it's, he said, you know, our hearts are broken. We have families, we have homes, we have our lives in Canada, but we, you know, we sacrificed so much with the idea that we were being part of a change. We were going to give South Sudan independence and then there was going to be a future. But the reality is, you know, you've got to get on with life and maybe you work at a meatpacking plant for a number of years and then you try and get out of the meatpacking world because physically it's incredibly hard on a body and the long hours take a terrible toll. So some of the guys moved into oil and gas. Uh, one of them is retrained as an electrician now. I know some of the women are working in clerical positions. Their daughters and sons are growing up. They've gone through the Canadian school system. And you know, they are still dealing, I'm sure, with unfinished business of the trauma of having been in war. I mean, there's always the thing that struck me being in South Sudan is just the levels of visible PTSD just amongst the population was beyond anywhere I'd been. So I can imagine for these young people here in Canada now, I mean, they must be still dealing with that trauma. Well, keep in mind, they're not so young anymore. You know, all of a sudden they're in their mid-40s and even early 50s. These are middle-aged people who are looking back at pretty dramatic lives. And I would add here, these South Sudanese that came from Cuba, there were many of them who would express to me how much they loved Canada. Mm. Not liked it, but loved Canada. I mean, that's to Canada's credit again that they brought them here, and that's, that's an amazing thing. Do we talk a bit about the legacy of this? One thing that strikes me is, I mean, as you mentioned, the, you know, the, the SPLA and the SPLM, the, which is now the government of South Sudan, has really hushed up any of this story and have denied the use of child soldiers to, to the largest extent. But as you say now, there's, a, there's another civil war in, in South Sudan itself this time since 2013. And the legacy of denying that that happened in the first place is that, of course, it's happening again. It very much is. And in the book, I describe what I call three waves of the child recruitment. The one being when the civil war, 1983 to 2005, broke out leading to the 1987 official policy, which was to gather the children. And then 2005, the war ends. But I would say to you that the recruitment of underage soldiers never stopped. Right. And I think it's important to remember the thing about taking underage soldiers, you don't have to pay them. Heck, you don't even have to feed them. It just never stopped. So that by 2011, when we have independence, there's starting to be ethnicized tension within South Sudan. And sure enough, the main, the largest single ethnic group, the Dinka, there starts to be recruitment of only underage Dinka. And this force, it was given the name Matyang Anur, which loosely translated basically means scorched earth. It refers to a brown rat that eats everything in its path. But this Matyang Anyur, the men who did the training and recruitment were veterans who were well into their 60s 
who had done exactly the same thing 35 years before. So there's this incredible continuity of the individuals within the South Sudanese military who've continued these practices. And I spent a lot of time tracking down individuals who either were doing the training or were themselves being trained. And I was really struck by how the methods being used to train them, which is basically, it's incredibly brutal, it hadn't changed in over 30 years. And so there's this pattern of militarization that has continued basically in an uninterrupted way, despite claims to the, the contrary. They've just continued doing this. And now because South Sudan once again is in a civil war situation, it's not only the state that is continuing the underage recruitment, but it's the different opposition groups and non-state militias. And I would add here, the United States government many years ago brought in what they called the Child Protection Act. Mm -hmm. And this was intended to discourage foreign countries from recruiting underage soldiers. And under the terms of this Child Protection Act, if a country is using underage soldiers, they are not eligible to receive military support or training from the United States. Over and over again, beginning with the George Bush administration, George Sr., George Jr., and then Obama and Trump, every year the American government basically gives South Sudan a waiver. And so for all these years, they've been rationalizing this continued use of underage soldiers or, you know, downplaying it. And I remember for years, international officials would be saying, oh, well, they only have 850 left. Or, you know, saying the usual, oh, well, you know, there are orphans who come into the garrisons and what can the military do? You know, I wish it was so simple, but the reality is it's systemic, it's highly organized, and the same men who were doing it in the mid-80s are still, you know, committing this act of, you know, taking underage men and women, mostly boys, I would add. Thank you, Carol, so much for all your work done to illuminate this story and this incredible story of these, these people who've now found this new life in Canada as well. It's, it's, I really highly recommend people take a look at this book. Can you tell us the name again? The book is called The Child Soldiers of Africa's Red Army, and the subtitle is The Role of Social Process and Routinized Violence in South Sudan's Military. I want to thank you for this interview, and I appreciate it's a complicated story, but I will hope that people can take from it. It's truly a very difficult historical account, but it also celebrates the resilience of people to be able to overcome these very difficult childhoods and to go on to enjoy family life and to hopefully be able to prevent their own children from having to be in these militarized situations. Great. Well, thank you so much, Carol. Thank you, David. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode or this podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're all slaves to the algorithm in this podcasting universe, and the more good things are said about us, the more opportunities we get to reach a bigger audience. And remember also to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again.
I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that in the oral history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.